This week on The Cinematologists, we've teamed up with the wonderful Silver Screen Video Podcast, hosted by Jacob and Jonathan. As big fans of their show, we reached out and asked if they would be interested in a collaborative episode, and we were delighted when they accepted. We decided to focus on the Australian director, Andrew Dominic, looking in depth at his three features. Chopper from 2000, starring Eric Banner in a career-defining turn, and Dominic's two exemplary dissections of American myth with Brad Pitt, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford from 2007, and Killing Them Softly from 2012. So we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me, as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. How are you doing? You okay? I'm doing very well. Yeah, I'm doing very well, thanks. I am, yeah, nice weekend. Last week before spring break here, so... Great. Gearing up for gearing up for a little bit of break, a little bit of research, a little bit of break. So, yeah, excited. What about you? Yeah, exactly the same. Last last week now, I've done everything's done in terms of um, lecture prep and all that kind of stuff until for for the first part of the se- semester go on gone holiday in inverted commas at, at the end of this week. So it'd be nice to just not do anything uh, for a while. But I've got a week of marking. I'm gonna try and do that thing of getting everything that you want off your plate off your plate until uh, and then you know have the space to be able to. Uh, to just down tools a, a little bit. I don't know how you feel, but it's like, it feels to me like, because I got COVID over Christmas, it feels like I literally haven't had a like a week or two weeks just doing nothing at all related to work since last last year, since last, last March when COVID sort of started. Because the summer was out the window, really. I mean, maybe I'm slightly exaggerating in terms, you know, August, there were weeks when I wasn't doing a lot, but there was always stuff on, on, you know, ongoing, I think, throughout last summer. Yeah, I, I feel a bit differently only because I was really militant about it um, and was fortunate enough to be in a position where I was able to, to be so. Um, but what's been interesting is, is having to having to really dredge to recall it, you know, because it's been so, so exhausting, yeah. like trying to think, okay, well, I did have had a nice time at Christmas, you know, as chaotic yeah. as it was, um, you know, but it has been very different to normal where you're, it hasn't. It it didn't provide the, the the kind of the fuel that it normally does. Where you, you know, you definitely feel like I'm really crawling over the the line now, um, and looking forward to a couple of weeks. And we're we're not coming. We're going to sort of take a little break, sort of a two or three weeks, aren't we? Because you're going to take a proper break, which I think is is absolutely necessary, given yeah. what we just said about Christmas and COVID, and you know how how yeah. hard it's been sort of the last few months. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got a couple of episodes in the can, but I think probably there's going to be two week, a two week break now at least um, before the next episode comes comes out. And I mean, you know, there's been a lot of content, so we're going to have three weeks in a row where something's gone out, which is unusual for us. Um, yeah, so looking forward to just having that little bit of a breather and resetting and getting energy back back together again. And and there's some ex- exciting stuff to come after. Easter as well um yeah so 
And we, uh, we of course, you know, just we're, we're not having a celebration this year. I mean, we did 100 episodes in five years last year. We sort of egged that one as far as we could. Um, but it's six years again now, so going strong still, six, six years of the podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. Feels like no time at all, but um, kind of amazing, six years. Um, mm. You know, yeah, definitely... Definitely worth noting, I think, because again, like everything, you get swept up and you forget actually that's a lot of it's a long time, you know, and still loving it as much as as much as we did. Yeah, it was it was interesting, sort of doing this. Um, I did a podcast workshop day at, at Nottingham for undergrads who were doing a film criticism module, and you know they were trying to sort of expand what film criticism is and doing video essays, and then one week on podcasting, and they asked me to come in and do the whole session. And the first hour I sort of did this, you know, a bit of a talk about the relationship between podcasting and and film criticism and placing it in that sort of context of the expansion of film culture post-internet, but what podcasting can do specifically based on the article that, that I wrote recently. Um, but it was interesting just to sort of look back and, you know, because you always sort of go through that, what is the cinematologist? What did you do? And sort of looking at all the different types of episodes we do has been uh, yeah it's really really gratifying to see how far we've come and and hopefully obviously going going forward with uh, more interesting episodes and in fact today again is another new new type of episode really for us which uh, which you put together yeah so this is our first podcast crossover episode and we've not done anything like this before but uh, we are releasing this episode on the same day as the people who are on the episode who are releasing it on their feed. So today is our collaboration with Silver Screen Video, which is an American-based podcast hosted by Jonathan and Jacob. And yeah, we we had a really lovely time a couple of weeks ago talking for yeah nearly two hours about Andrew Dominic and three of his films in particular. Yeah, it was um, a great conversation and a great idea I think you know that 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 sort of sense of we're always looking and listening to um kindred spirit podcasts I think um in terms of getting ideas about the way their conversation takes place and even the sort of structure of of audio design and stuff but I think you know uh, um Jonathan and Jacob they 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 have similarities to us in their in their kind of conversational style and tone but um, and they're 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 very in depth. They have long podcasts, and we've. I mean, it's interesting because we had a discussion about sort of scaling back the length of our podcasts and then doing you know doing uh, the the bonus on top of that. Um, so this is kind of back to a, a longer episode for us. But yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating com- conversation because we're all Andrew Dominic fans. I think you know particularly well. I mean, all of his films I think are really a, there's a lot to talk about, and we, and and we did. And it was great to to get into where people's perspectives come from, and you know, because they're they're not academics, and they're not teaching films, so they're coming from a, a, an, and again, a, you know, they're definitely cinephiles, but they're not kind of they don't work in the industry. It is a sort of labor of love for them. So there's a real there's I think there's a really interesting sort of balance there that we were trying to strike in our conversations, you know, about not sort of going off on one academically, but then also being taking a lot of what they were were saying on board and uh, expanding and, and sort of trying to de- develop the the interest in the films and some of the criticisms and some of the reasons why we we love the the Andrew Dominic films and, and sort of placing them into kind of a context of American culture coming from over here in the UK, which was an interesting part of the conversation, I thought. 
Yeah, and it just definitely one of the things that attracted me to sort of reach out to them about about it was the format, you know, that kind of long form, but there's a focus to it. So, you know, they, they often focus on sort of three films by a director or three films in a, you know, and that's something yeah, that we hadn't we hadn't really done. We we always kind of touch on filmmakers' filmographies, but to to really look at three films in context. And what was really interesting was doing it was realizing, oh actually, yeah, you can you start to see those threads in a in a career, the evolutions yeah. of a filmmaker's style or how they might be responding to the previous works and things like that. And there was just a real, a lot of space. And like you say, the, the dynamics of four people, I thought worked really well um, because, you know, we've, we've got our podcast style. We've also got our individual style and it's the same for them. And it was, it was a really, really fun conversation. And I think that's, yeah, we hadn't also hadn't kind of really got into it on a kind of what might be termed a mainstream American filmmaker for a while. So it was mm. a nice diversion again, to kind of just go back to, Sort of circle back around to that kind of conversation, which was, which was fascinating, and chance to rewatch those movies, which was an absolute thrill. We, we talked about Chopper, yeah. the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and then uh, killing them softly, which was great because we all, we all love that movie, and it was a chance to champion something we think is, is underappreciated. For sure. And um, because this was such a long episode and such an in-depth conversation, we kind of said everything that we wanted to say. So there won't be any uh, after discussion. Uh, I think you'll have had your fill by the time we get to the end of this chat. And we're going to leave the the bonus this time around as well. So, uh, Neil, should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Thank you, Jacob and Jonathan, for uh, this uh, collaboration. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoy this episode. Folks, Jacob here with the silver screen video. I got my co-host, Jonathan. Uh, and if you're hearing my voice and you're listening to the Cinematologist feed, you're thinking, what the hell's going on? Did I push the wrong button? No, this is a crossover episode. we got Dario and Neil with us from uh, across the pond in the UK. What's up, guys? Hey, how you doing? It's really good to be here. I like this, you know, sort of merging of the universes. Hell yeah. We're doing our... Uh, Hell yeah, our, yeah, us too. Our first crossover episode uh, that we're doing. Um, yeah, happy to have you guys here. Yeah, same here. It's uh, it's great. It's great to join you. I've been uh, listening to your show after Neil put put me onto it. So it's really interesting in sort of uh, thinking about how we both sort of do our podcasts and what the the similarities and the the differences are, and and these kinds of crossovers, are, I, I think, are, are really interesting. I wanted to ask you guys, um, just kind of talking about it up front. How is your I mean, maybe maybe shop talk isn't uh, the best uh, content, but what's it uh, what's it been like starting your own podcast? Why did you guys um, decide to do one, and and how has it grown over the years? I know I heard about you guys from uh, the column that David Hudson does on the Criterion blog, yeah. where he does like the daily column, and he references you guys a few times. So I'd heard of you guys before you, you know, even reached out. Um, but yeah, what 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 inspired you guys to to kind of start a podcast? Do you want well, to go, we, Neil? Yeah, I'll go for that. Yeah, we were we were colleagues. Uh, we both teach film, and we were colleagues at Falmouth University, where I still am. And yeah, we just we became friends, and we just went to the movies together, and we sort of would go and yeah, sort of you know do that do that thing of kind of talking about it afterwards. And even though we taught film in a university, there wasn't really the space to to watch films and talk about it in that in that way that's informal but but can kind of go wherever 
wherever you want. So we we thought it'd be nice to kind of to introduce that to our work really and um, do it for students and do it for staff and just see who who would come along. And we were both getting into podcasts at that time, and uh, we thought, why don't we why don't we record it? Why don't we put on some films? record us chatting about it beforehand and then record the conversation with the audience and that's where it kind of grew and uh yeah it it, it just grew that was about six years ago i think mm. Mm. yeah and uh, then dario moved to brighton and um we were just having a good time with it and it was growing so we just we just carried it on so uh now dario i'm uh i am an american who has attempted many times uh, Jonathan's going to be rolling his eyes when I say this, but I've attempted many times unsuccessfully to get into European and specifically British soccer. Oh, okay. Uh, so when <laughs> when you said Brighton, I know there is a team that is, is there a Seagull logo? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's 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 where I work. Um, yeah, and the, there's a, the the stadium is actually a, kind of adjacent to one of the university campuses. But I'm from I'm from the north of England originally, so I'm a I'm a Leeds United fan, and Neil actually is a Manchester United fan, which is kind of interesting because they are bitter rivals in in soccer. You know, they're a, as adversarial as as you could find. And Leeds oh. this year has just gone back up into the into the top division, so that rivalry has kind of been renewed this year um yeah, yeah so we never would have been friends in the 80s it would not have been possible. <laughs> no <laughs> yeah i i i started out this year like um uh, pretending like i was going to really follow the premier league this year and so i knew that that leeds had made it back up and you guys have a really interesting coach is that right like i had heard that like yeah. an american comparison would be like if you know, if Bill Belichick coached like a Canadian football league team, he's a legendary <laughs> coach on like a nothing team. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting one because because Leeds has got a, a really, you know, strong history, but kind of back in the 70s, they were sort of the, the you know, the, the number one side 30, 40 years ago. And, and but mm. have recently spent a lot of time in in the in the second and third divisions, really, what the equivalent would be. And then this guy Bielsa, who's a, an Argentinian um, became the coach and he's very sort of eccentric and doesn't speak any English and has these uh, legendary kind of ways of working with 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 his players and you know the the top coaches in in all over Europe kind of rate him as a sort of godfather figure so oh, having okay. him at Leeds is is really sort of and, and him taking them back up to the to the top division has you know um kind of ingrained his status as this sort of uh, iconic figure it's right. like when a south you know like south american or european auteur takes on a genre movie <laughs> ah, just like right. how is that how is that going to work but yeah there's, there's a real there's a real kind of yeah merging of styles which is really entertaining to watch yeah hell yeah um i, I do have well, one last question before we get into uh, talking about our director today um you guys are, you know, teach film and are, are both film scholars. You guys have um, any um, specific areas of, of concentration that that particularly interest you from like a scholarly perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, for myself, um, I kind of was in recent years. I've been much more interested in kind of philosophical takes on mm. um, cinema and and sort of utilizing various elements and of various um aspects of of philosophy particularly around kind of aesthetics and and ethics to to examine where film kind of sits in in the digital age um and but but 
even more recently, I've been doing a lot of work on on sort of the film podcasting. I've written quite a, a long piece recently on the crossover of of podcasting and 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 cinema and how they work together. One being a um, a medium that is obviously audiovisual, but then how films kind of translate into a non-visual form and mm. sort of pushing forward ideas around how how the, how the cinematic can tap into the the imagination of film fans and and kind of make us think about film in different ways even though we don't actually have the images in front of us when we're when we're talking about that sure okay yeah no that's interesting um neil what about you me i i've got a background in filmmaking and uh, still still am a filmmaker so i I predominantly teach film practice and uh, screenwriting is my specialism within that as a screenwriter and producer but I, gotcha. my, my sort of scholarly interest is, is predominantly music documentaries and concert films, and I'm currently writing a book for the BFI on that now. So, oh wow, okay, no, that sounds great. Um, what's your yeah, what's your what, awesome? What's your top three top three concert films? I'm going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> wow, That's top three concert films. Um, yeah. Well, most recently, the top three that I would I would call on uh, "Stop Making Sense," which we which we talked about on on our podcast a little while back. Uh, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, which I absolutely love, and mm. um, I don't know. I'm going to say the White Stripes under Blackpool Lights, which was shot on Super Eight, which I really, really love and think is a, I a love, fantastic. I concert. love that that concert movie. Yeah, that 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 under Blackpool Lights is so fucking good. Yeah, big time. Um, Can I just ask you guys a question? What's that? Can I just ask you guys a question? Because obviously, we I, I got I started listening to to your podcast. After seeing Neil Young um, pop up on it, who's a who's a friend of mine, and um, sort of been listening back, but I wondered how you guys met and how you, what, what what kind of made you guys start a podcast. John, you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah, we uh, we've known each other since high school, and um, we went to high school together, and and we always loved movies. Uh, honestly, Jacob was pretty much the only person uh, at school that that we would talk about movies and then it, it just kept going after high school and we would make top 10 list and just do all the movie nerd shit that only two of us would hear about. So, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, and at the end of 2019, we were just like, uh, let's start a movie podcast because <laughs> podcasts, are su- podcasts are super easy now and they're super accessible. And, uh, and like I think it'd be fun to kind of have a film community. That's kind of what I've what I've wanted from the beginning is like a a community for people to come together since the state of cinema is somewhat um not it's not the best right now, we'll say that. So it's nice to kind of have this community where people can, you know, hear these critics and 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 hear about these directors and all that that they would have normally not heard of and um you know, for any younger listeners, it's really nice because if you don't have a driving force in your life that kind of pushes you to watch these older films, you may miss that chapter and not appreciate it or, or not even know it exists. So that's um, that's kind of what the driving force was behind it was just to have a way to get that out because it's uh, movies are so much fun to talk about. Obviously, we all do it. So. Mm. yeah i mean we were we were doing it anyways so we were we were like hey let's record this and see you know let's let's record you know us you know shooting the shit about movies and of course it evolved into you know us doing these director episodes and 
and uh you know then we i I didn't know this but apparently you can just message people and they'll come on your podcast uh and so so we've been doing that uh and it's uh yeah it's it's been fun definitely yeah have you have you guys just just to add to that are are you guys kind of like children of the 80s when it comes to your formative years and the whole sort of you know the idea of the the video club or the video shop being a, a hub of, of discussion is obviously kind of disappeared now. And, but that, you know, the podcast almost serves as a, an echo of that, you know, 20, 30 years later. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of been our, um, our, I guess, brand for lack of a better word is, you know, we're just a couple of video store clerks, you know, none, neither of us do anything professionally related with film or anything. We kind of just have our own, you know, careers. And it's just, uh, you know, just kind of a, a, like cinephilia is just something that has both just infected us like a brain disease. And uh, so, yeah, we kind of, we kind of frame it as like a, a, a video store for the end of the world, you know, or for the end of cinema, uh, which, you know, if you listen to us, we're pretty pessimistic about, <laughs> you know, those things. And especially as it relates to streaming and Netflix and, you know, it's, and uh, so, so yeah, we just try to keep that uh, that little flame alive a little bit, you know. Uh, yeah, because honestly, like, uh, I can't not to get too nostalgic, but like, you know, the idea of blockbuster just not being here anymore just really sucks. And this is a way to kind of like the video store in general. Like, this is a kind of a way to to fill, but to to push that um, out because it's like I remember going to blockbuster every new release day, every every Tuesday when when their new independent movies would arrive and you go and you talk to, you talk to the the clerks there and you're like, Oh, which one should I check out? And there is just hundreds of movies that I would have never known about or watched because this is pre-internet and this is, you know, there's really no way to know what's coming out unless you talk to the movie clerk. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it sucks that that's, it sucks that that's gone and never coming back, but that's life. So (laughs) here's the podcast. (laughs) Did the does the video store hold any um any any magic in your guys's own like kind of cinematic upbringing or, or no? It certainly does for me. Yeah, you know, yeah. I just I rewatched um, Romeo is Bleeding, the Gary Oldman movie directed by Peter Medak, and uh, which has been re released by the BFI. And I just you know the first thing I thought about when I put it on was in this pristine Blu-ray was like I've. I've not seen this film, even though I've seen it, because I I saw it on a VHS, which was probably rented about fifty times, you <laughs> yeah. know. And I was just it was I would just trawl the shelves, and I remember the cover, you know, and Gary Oldman looking disheveled and Alina Olin looking fantastic, and thinking, yeah, I'll give this a go, um, you know. And the, in in the I had a, a really really great video store in Luton, which is where I'm from, and would just rent whatever was new and whatever looked interesting. Um, and I certainly miss. I, that's what I kind of miss is the is the shelves, you know, and the yeah. thumbnails are just not the same for me. I liked picking it up and reading the back, you know, I think there's that tactility, which is, which is, is a shame, you know, that, 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 that that's gone. I, I do miss it, but it's amazing how many films bring it back, you know, and just think just instantly sort of put me back in that, in that dark, dingy yeah. you know, room. Um, yeah. Very, very good memories. Yeah. I mean, for me, I just, I just remember that, when you went to get VHS tapes that 
in the first instance where where I was from, there wasn't even a video store. It, you were basically in what what was called the, the corner shop, or you know what would be Seven Eleven probably now. Yeah. Right. And you know, it's just got like a wall of videos, and then the person behind the counter usually had kind of lax morals about what he would rent out. And I just remember sort of at you know thirteen, fourteen, be, being able to get hold of the Terminator and. Uh, uh, alien or evil dead and and you know sort of getting it home and having a few mates around and say oh you've got this film that you're not supposed to be watching and yeah. you know there's that 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 sense of the the labor and the um the possibilities of of um you know having access to something that that is is off limits or or taboo and and how the video shop kind of played into that and interestingly in our last our last episode on sex in the cinema we were sort of talking about how that's completely disappeared now where everyone has got is a click away from any kind of violence or pornography that that is available you know yeah i mean i remember kind of you know getting up the courage to and trying to find the words to rent things that that looked a bit saucy you know from a kind (laughs) of you know i'm a young i'm at college and i'm studying film and this is a really interesting director and the 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 video store clerk just being like yeah neil you really want to you really want to you know this for the aesthetics um you know and but now there's no there's none of that having to get past your own shame to watch anything which is, is a shame yeah, this uh, the, the director of Wild Things with Denise Richards is really an interesting auteur. You know, that's, <laughs> that's why I need to watch it eight times this month. <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's. Phew. I mean, it's fucking brutal to even think about. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not coming back. I mean, I don't know. Something we we have always kind of talked about on our podcast is like, you know, there's this Proust quote. Well, I say quote, but I don't. I mean, I don't know the quote actually, but it's. You know, instead of uh, instead of chase, instead of going back, you know, to the kind of geographical location, you know, instead of doing that, like chase the feeling, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what that's kind of what what made us want to start a podcast and kind of think of it as like a video store because it's like, yeah, the magic wasn't actually in the video store. I mean, it was, but the magic was really the movies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was really the 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 what was on the screen itself you know regardless of where you got it so you know yeah yeah but there's something there's something about um like neil was saying like going to the store and or going to the movie store and being able to pick up the cases like that was like you know a lot of people like to go to the mall to hang out but like i would love to go to like our local video store be it blockbuster or any of the other smaller local ones and just look at the movies and like just pick it up read the back of it and be like, Hey, is this something that I want to watch? Like, cause that's how you like discover. It's not the same scrolling through mm-hmm. all this digital shit. Well, um, I mean, I was trying to have a little optimistic spin on it, but uh, you know, there's no, opti- there's no optimism about this. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what do you think guys? Should we get into the uh, director we're talking about this week? Sure. Yeah. So we, we reached out to you guys and, and uh, Andrew Dominic came up. What, uh, what, what kind of, uh, I don't know what what came up for you guys and why why Andrew Dominic I guess I I obviously love you know his work but I'm interested as to as to what uh, specifically about him uh, uh, came up for you guys when you suggested him. Um, I think f- for me I, th- I think there's a sort of interesting look at a director who I I think has made three films that are exceptionally good and only three films. And there's a sort of interesting kind of way into understanding where somebody like this fits into the the contemporary, you know, film universe and asking the question of why hasn't somebody like this made more films? And what, 
is he of an era maybe or if he was born into a different era would 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 he have had a different kind of a, a, a career because he does have a i think a kind of classical sensibility in many ways and it's interesting to see obviously somebody who's come from um or he's made a, a, a film essentially that's uh, that's based in australia but is is he a new zealander or is he australian i can't remember um he was he was born in New Zealand, but yeah, he yeah. was Australia when he was two years old. So I, th- yeah. I think mainly Australian. Absolutely, and then and obviously the, his his film Chopper has sort of gone on to have a cult status. But then I think his his entry into an examination of uh, you know American mythology, both in a sort of cinematic sense, but then also in a wider cultural sense both in 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 sort of genre terms but then how underlaying the genre is is much more kind of interesting or in-depth thematic ideas about capitalism and about mythology and about masculinity and and all of those things i think i think he's a really interesting director both in an aesthetic sense and you know in these kind of wider analysis of uh, american culture Mm, right yeah, I'm interested. I'd, I'd actually never seen Chopper before, uh, right. which you know, unfortunately you can only see on uh, on YouTube. Um, yeah, Neil, what did you what did, what did you think about Chopper? What uh, what draws you to this movie? Are you, are you, do you buy that this is a this is a cult uh, long forgotten hit? Yeah, I mean it's it it had that. It had, I mean it's good good kind of good to talk about it first from those kind of videos to it because it certainly had that word of mouth mm. kind of you know. Uh, reputation you know have you seen this movie this kind of crazy australian movie um you know a director that no one had heard of and at the time eric banner was was kind of unknown as well and there's yeah it's it's it was kind of startling to watch it again i haven't seen it in a long time and just the the energy within it is just so so intense um Mm. that i think what's interesting about it is that you know (laughs) He, it's almost like he wears himself out as a filmmaker. He makes this film and then disappears for a few years, and he makes another one which is similarly exhausting in different ways, in a right. you know positive sense, um, and then disappears for a few years um, and comes back and makes something that's really uncomfortable and intense, and then kind of drifts away. And it's, it's almost like there's there's a there's an energy which he puts into the films which is is kind of all encompassing. Um, and I think you know you look at Chopper when it was when it was released it was a really unusual piece of work um and but it also as similarly to what what his films seem to do is they do hark back to you know the the past you know um both kind of set in the past in terms of the storytelling but but certainly sort of back to things like wake and fright and that kind of exploitation of the 70s um and i'd say new hollywood as well chopper was struck by how much it looked like taxi driver when I rewatched it. So yeah, I think it's a, uh, I do think that because he makes these films so far apart, he, he gets missed as a filmmaker. So his films get missed, you know, he, those three films, those three sort of narrative films are, are, are a long time apart, but they would all sit alongside other sort of different movements, um, particularly sort of Jesse James alongside sort of there'll be blood and no country for old men and, and chopper when it came out, it just, it, he seems to get missed because he's not prolific and he's not making films at a, a regular clip. Right. Yeah. He seems to, um, he seems to, to have a little bit of an outsider status uh, almost, even, even though his, his work is, is definitely critically uh, acclaimed. Uh, John, what about you? How was, well, had, had you, now I, we hadn't talked about it. Have you seen Chopper before this, John? 
I had not seen Chopper, and wow. um, I, I was yeah, I was excited to watch it. I've heard about it. It's came up. I'm a big Bronson fan, <laughs> yeah. so Chopper tends to come up in that conversation sometimes. Um, so I was excited to watch it. I love uh, this director. I think that uh, I think he has a lot to say. I agree with your assessment about him putting out his movies like so far apart that he gets lost. When we did our top ten westerns, like uh, a while back now for the for the podcast, um, I really wanted Jesse James, you know, to be on there. But you know, there was just two other good ones that got knocked out. But I think it's one of the, I honestly think it's I mean, it's easily the best western to come out in the last twenty years. But mm-hmm. I think it's 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 amazing. He is a visionary, and he deconstructs things so like thoughtfully and. Um, I can't wait to see what he does next. And I hope that more people start to watch his movies because he has a lot to say. Yeah. I, um, I don't know, just to throw a little, uh, I don't know, just to be the turd in the punch bowl, I guess I (laughs) had never seen chopper before, even though I'd really loved his other two movies. And honestly, I didn't I didn't even know chopper existed, um, until, uh, I read your DM (laughs) and Neil to us, (laughs) Um, I was like, oh, he has a, oh, a third movie. Okay, cool. So I, I went and watched it, and um, boy, this copy on YouTube is rough. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it, it's it's really bad. I mean, I, I like I tried to watch it on my TV, and it wouldn't even like I don't know. I think my t- my TV is like maybe too nice a little bit to like really like it. Just I'd watch it on my laptop because it just wasn't coming in clear on my TV. There was just too much you know, digital artifacts and stuff. It looked like some kind of like art project or something on my TV. Um, and so, so I, I don't like count that as like, you know, I've really seen chopper and I've got the full experience, but like watching that blurry version on YouTube and like, uh, which, you know, I mean, these are the realities of being a cinephile in 2021, you know, some shit is just not available to you, you know? Um, and uh, I don't know, this 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 felt to me kind of like a Tarantino, you know, one of those late 90s Tarantino ripoffs that uh, we talked about this in a previous episode, um, just kind of the the violence of it. And um, I, I thought Eric Bana was great, but I, I kind of had a difficult time seeing the, the diamond in the rough uh, here. But again, that is completely qualified by the fact that, you know, I watched that terrible YouTube version, so you know, take, take my opinion with a grain of salt, obviously. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, what about any, anything but unqualified praise for this movie? Dario? Um, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those, I think that, that is, is really sort of living and dying by Banner's performance. And I think that mm. it's, there are, there, there are scenes in there that are so raw and funny and brutal at the same time. And right. I think that, that that edginess has to be kind of... Um, it's difficult to place that into what what is he actually trying to do with this? You know what I mean? And, and maybe right. there isn't a, a sort of overarching kind of, you know, thematic direction beyond just the fact of, oh, we're going to kind of shock you, make you laugh at the same time. And I think, that, I mean, that's the, the stabbing scene is is sort of indicative of the of really it's ambiguous in terms of what is what is going on here so on the one hand you know you've got this absolute sort of violent 
moment and the you know the sound of the the stab going in and the the fact that it's his friend and it sort of comes out of nowhere and then the complete almost sort of disregard of the fact that he's just been stabbed and this guy and he's almost sort of disappointed with his friend you know oh mate why right. did you have to do that mate and <laughs> it's almost really difficult to to understand what what the film is doing with that and maybe that's where the fact that this has become kind of more of a cult classic because because it doesn't have the the specificity in terms of what what Dominic is trying to do and and, and again you know when we're all thinking about films it's almost intentionality is a, is a big one I think for many critics in terms of oh yeah I understand what this filmmaker is trying to do here right yeah it's not a subtle film um, no, right. you know but, but in which in you know it feels very much like a first film in that sense you know it is it is very direct very funny um you know very gruesome um but I think Dario is right that it, it, I think if you look at it on its own it's hard to see but I think you can definitely see where 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 the interest lies when you look back at it you know certainly for me sort of watching I watched that one night and then I watched Jesse James the next night and the leap in terms of the filmmaking is mm. astounding but yeah. <laughs> but the the interest in kind of deconstructing myth and also the kind of the banality of of these mythical figures you know like really really sort of undermining public perceptions of Chopper and and Jesse James by just spending time watching them kind of fumble around through life, you know, like there's a really almost kind of caper-esque nature to the second yeah. half of Chopper where he's, he's, you know, darting around talking to the police and he's darting around, you know, trying you know, try not to get killed or not to kill anyone, you know, it, it's, it's really clumsy, but mm. that seems to me to be the point. And then, you know, in Jesse James, so much of the film is just, waiting you know and sort of spending spending time sort of finding out what's 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 going on in a way that seems to me that he's very much interested in saying actually what that there's no romance here whatever the romance that might be sort of part of the public consciousness about these characters they're this is, these are unromantic lives um sort of with these kind of shots of violence every now and again well, along those well, same lines, I was wondering, I meant to do some research into the kind of true story behind uh, Chopper, but I just didn't get a chance to. Is it, Do you guys know the story? Is there, is there I guess, what uh, what is kind of the public uh, myth that this is drawing on? Because I, I didn't really know anything about it, and to be honest, I still don't. It's I'm, kind I'm, of his myth, yeah, because he wrote the book. <laughs> he wrote the book that it's based on, yeah. and he wrote a number of books, you know, so he's kind of self-created a myth. Um, oh, that the, 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 I think is is the basis for the film, and I don't know how much of it is true or not. Uh, it certainly feels very wild in terms of the telling of it. And all, all all three of his films are kind of meta in a way that they are actually in the film themselves in the construction of it. There is a there is a, an analysis of the way that myths get constructed, and then the film itself is contributing to that mm-hmm. because it, you know it is blurring these these sort of lines, especially Chopper. In terms of, you know, it's his book, but he's an unreliable narrator. He wants to furnish his own, you know, his his own sort of infamy in, in a way. And you know, through Jesse James, there's, there's an awful lot of talk, especially from the narration and the way that the narration is set up at the beginning. Um, you know, when he the, 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 he he starts to talk about um, 
you know, that idea of he is somebody who comes into a room and it got warmer when he entered and rains fall straighter and clock slowed and this kind of construction of a, of a, of a persona of a, of a mythology. And, and the films are actually then themselves kind of being part of that. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, I, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, before, go ahead. before we jump to Jesse James, I want to say, I, I do disagree with your take, Jacob, on the fact that it feels like, now, mind you, you did say that it's, it's, you know, could have been the quality of the, of the picture, but, uh, I didn't, I don't feel that this was a Tarantino ripoff, um, like a, like a typical late nineties, early 2000 kind of, because I feel like there was a lot of character to it. And, uh, I believe Dario is the one who said it kind of lives and dies on, Banna's performance right and i thought he was absolutely electric i didn't give a shit about anything else except what he was gonna do next mm, right. and there's so many scenes that you can reference in this movie to narrow it down to just one when he's trying to confess to murder it's one of the best scenes in the whole movie he's yeah, like yeah, yeah. he pulls the fucking gun out and he's like here here's the four i shot him with this and he's like yeah, 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 you yeah. could buy one of those anywhere um Right. There's there's so much like just coolness, like not like praising his behavior, but the way he does the character. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved it. I actually went on Amazon as soon as I finished it and bought a DVD of it um, because I found a DVD for like 10 bucks. I wanted the VHS, but they were out of stock. <laughs> um, so I bought I bought the DVD. So hopefully the quality will be a bit better, but I'm looking forward to rewatching it um, and hopefully the quality will at least be maybe 720 opposed to whatever that was on YouTube. <laughs> 260 it's, or whatever. It's interesting to consider re- re- whether really Banner has gone on to do anything that kind of has hit that height since. You know, he's he's often strikes me as something of a kind of one-note presence. And I know that Neil is a big fan of Hulk. And when we talked about that film, we we said that one of the problems with it is the fact that that Banner doesn't sort of bring doesn't seem to bring any charisma to that to that role and and you know you look at him in something like I don't know something like Troy and then other kind of I mean Munich maybe he's quite he's quite good in that but has he ever really lived up to this this absolutely tour de force performance? Yeah, I don't I don't think I don't think so at all. I think that I, I believe the review I read from from uh, Roger Ebert was he said that. Uh, Eric Bana, he, he paraphrased, was doing something no one else can do in this movie. And I believe for this movie, he's right. But I think when you have hindsight, obviously, here we mm. are like 21 years later. Yeah, I, I, to be fair, I'm not an Eric Bana fan. But even if I take that aspect away, I don't think he's done anything that's even close to living up to the charisma and just the overall like personality he brought to this character. Mm. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is Munich, but Munich is not really an actor's movie. Yeah. You know, it's it's more of like an ensemble piece or like a director's movie, you know, as opposed to, you know, this, which is like, you know, like obviously you guys are saying just a complete uh, tour de force um, yeah. of acting. I do want to, before we move on to Jesse James, I do want to um, defend myself a little bit. I, I, <laughs> I'm not saying it's, I guess I'm not saying it's a complete Tarantino ripoff. There were, you know, me and John just talked about this on an episode where they were, you know, in the late nineties or mid to late nineties and the early two thousands, there were just so many, um, you know, Tarantino ripoffs. And the thing that gives me that vibe was the stabbing scene where he is being stabbed and, you know, still kind of acting normal. 
and also the scene where he, the, the scenes, plural, where he, you know, violently does something horrifically violent to someone and then goes, oh, I'm sorry about that. Oh, you know, <laughs> and like that, like injection of like humor into, you know, what is something that is, you know, ostensibly horrifying uh, seems to be like a Tarantino trope that like if Chopper was made in 1990, maybe would not have been included in the film. Um, but I don't know. That's that's. Well, I mean, I just I feel like it was more satire. Like, I feel like that was the point, like, yeah, because of the character. Um, but I, I see what you mean. I mean, there's no getting around it. There's no getting around this this Tarantino aesthetic and, and right. the tropes that he brought to filmmaking. Right. Um, I mean, they even say it on the front of the DVD I bought. They said, you know, Reservoir Dog meets something else. I can't remember. But the point is they literally reference a Tarantino movie on the cover. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you can't really escape it. That's true. I mean, I mean maybe there is a sort of the differences in that there's an intentional superficiality or, or an aestheticism to Tarantino that he is kind of using that knowingly in a very uh, gratuitous, again, is an easy word, but, but, you know, to, in, in, in order to give you viewing pleasure mm-hmm. out and out viewing pleasure. Whereas here, I think that this is meant to be kind of on purpose, ambivalent on the one hand, you can kind of laugh at it cause, cause it, but it's terrifying at the same time. You know, there's a coldness about it that, that Tarantino doesn't have. Right. No, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I had a quick question for Neil. Um, so you, I've never seen the, uh, the Ang Lee Hulk movie. So you, you, Wait, you really? like that movie? Yeah. I've never, I've never watched it. Um, huh. so I kind of wanted Neil to, to say real quick, like, uh, cause I, I've only heard bad things about it, but I mean, if there's something good to know, I want to know it. Cause I'd, I'd watch it actually. Yeah, wow. so we we well, buckle up. That's the right person. Yeah, um, <laughs> this is now an Ang Lee Hulk podcast. Just so you know. um, it's yeah, I mean, it's an Ang Lee movie, and it's a it's 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 kind of the 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 way I describe it. It's it's what everyone says they want from a superhero movie made by an auteur, mm. you know. But what they really they don't really want that. They want you know they want a, a Marvel movie directed by someone that they know who's kind of just sort of doing the the things that superhero movies do this is a very strange movie it's very, it leans really heavily into sort of the greek and the sort of the shakespearean tragedy sort of undercurrents of comic books and it does some really really interesting things with yeah with with the kind of the myths and the stories um it has two amazing performances by nick nolte and uh, sam elliott as these kind of warring patriarchs who are kind of pressuring their children so much that it's inevitable that nuclear war is going to break out i mean it's it's it it looks amazing um the design of it is really special it's it's not it's not a marvel movie in any sense and it you know i think it's the it's the reason that feige takes the control that he does now is because he gave the reins over to this person who's interested in you know family trauma and it's a really you know, it's a film about family trauma and it's got some really murky ethics in it, you know, that, that, that are, that you just, you don't see it, you know, so at the start of the movie, you realize that Nick Nolte's character is this kind of nuclear scientist working for the military who's developing all this sort of radiation based stuff. And he's using, he's using his son as the, the vessel for that, um, you know, sort of, and, 
this kind of idea of like passing on these these the the science into the into the children is really really kind of bold um and sort of it, it causes the eric the sort of the eric banner's character um to to kind of to rebel against something that he has literally no control over um and the you know that the effects are a little bit dated but they're certainly they're certainly not as bad as people have made out and i i just love it i think it's it's exactly the kind of thing i want a superhero movie to do which is is to feel yeah to feel kind of simultaneously ridiculous because it's about a giant green radioactive man but also to to kind of to try and tap into something that is genuinely sort of universal and human which i think it does really well i recommend it to most people because i think it's got a really bad rap yeah well, i think you've you've sold me maybe i'll have to check it out now i also had no idea sam elliott was in it so that's cool. Yeah, he's great in it as well. He plays Jennifer Connelly's dad, so Jennifer Connelly's in it as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have a uh, Ang Lee has never made a bad movie hot take that I'm gonna <laughs> unfurl and detonate at a specific time on our podcast one day. So, John, you just you just look forward to that, okay? Yeah, I am gonna look forward to that. Um... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, the design of that Hulk is so good too. Like the, the modern Marvel Hulk, like looks like the Jolly Green Giant, you know? And like that, that Hulk in that movie looks like, I mean, he looks like the Hulk from the comic books, you know? Also, when people, when people start talking about how effects are dated, I'm sorry. When you look at some of these movies that have came out in the last few years, when they're like, we're not even going to pay attention to this CGI and just throw it in there. It looks like fucking garbage. It looks like shit that would have came out. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Their third act CGI monstrosity. Uh yeah. So Meanwhile, anyway. what's also great what's also that. great about the Hulk movie is that there's no there's no bad guy. Like there's in a sense there's no giant world threat. The Hulk becomes the threat because of she just kind of goes out of control. It's a really contained film where it's basically about fathers and sons. Um and that's the peril. You know, there's not a there's no gloves and there's no, you know, stones. It's just <laughs> big glowy things. Big glowy things are terrible. <laughs> so, yeah. It's just it's just about this this kind of the world of the film that I think is really yeah, it's really well handled. If a big hole doesn't open up in the sky, I'm not interested. So <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so I think um I think I think maybe we should jump into Assassination of Jesse, excuse me, let me say the full title. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Um, this is, uh, you know, John, you talked about this. I'm with you. I think this is, I think this is the best Western since Unforgiven. That's that's my take on this movie. Um, it's uh, can't it's disagree with that. So, huh? yeah, I can't disagree with that. Can't disagree with that take at all. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a masterpiece. Um, Dario, Neil, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I think it's it's absolutely wonderful, and and you know, the sort of Malik elements to it. I think what's really interesting is is now that you know you go from something like Chopper, where you're working with someone who wasn't a star at the time. Yeah, you can argue that he, he became one afterwards in Banner, but not not on the same league as as Brad Pitt. And I think what's interesting is is what Pitt does in this, and what maybe he does slightly differently in uh in killing them softly but that that idea of mixing persona and character and there's very few sort of leading men who i think can can do that 
And it would be interesting again, you know, you know, you think of once upon a time in Hollywood and where Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are sort of, you know, two of the biggest names of the last 20 years side by side. And then you think of something like DiCaprio in in um uh <laughs> in the of the Western the name escapes me now that he he did with uh, Jamie Foxx. Um Django. Django yeah, yeah, Django oh, yeah, Unchained. Django, Django Unchained. Yeah. And, yeah, no, it's a completely different, obviously a completely different kind of movie, but I I love the idea that then you take Brad Pitt and you you turn him into Jesse James and then you're let you, what you can do then is play with that idea of of the mythology of Jesse James and who that would who that would be and the the way that he's he's framed and the eyes are sort of brought out in the color. I mean, it's just shot amazingly well. And I love how in in many ways with with both the films that the comparison between Brad Pitt and Sam Shepard is really brought to the fore. And again. I'm talking about characters, but also personas when, you know, a lot of people make the, the comparison between Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. And I think that there's some, something really interesting about how he's playing with that, that star persona and how it feeds into the idea of what we think about somebody like Jesse James as a, as a mythological character. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Take a hundred percent. But uh, before uh, Neil, I wanted to hear what you think about it before we jump into more of it yeah agreed i think it's astounding um it, i remember watching it at a press screening when it when it came out and it was they used to do these three or four days where they would bust the sort of local press to a hotel and and they'd have a take over a screen in a cinema and you'd watch sort of five movies a day um of the stuff that was coming out and this was on there and i was kind of ex- i was excited because it looked great and and, and I, was, I knew chopper well and then I watched it and could not see what was next, you know, like everyone sort of bust into the next movie. And I was like, there's no way I could see anything after this. And I just sort of sat there because I just, it was, I was absolutely blown away by, it. I think I, I, I agree with Jacob. I think it is a masterpiece. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's astounding. Like it's so the command of, of the film by Dominic, I think is extraordinary. And as, as Dara said, with, with someone like Brad Pitt, at the center of it and knowing exactly why he is the perfect person for this. Everything just kind of flows out from that decision. Um, and I, I love everything about it. I love the voiceover. I love the pace. It's an actor's masterclass. You know, it's got just a great actor in every, every role. even Jeremy Renner, who I normally can't stand you know, is, <laughs> is, is good in this movie, which just shows you how good Dominic is, you know, to, to go back to Banner, you watch Chopper and you think that um, Eric Banner could do anything. And you realize, well, actually, he can't, you know. And and then the same with with Jeremy Renner. For me, it's like, you know, that what what Dominic can bring out of him as a director, I think, is 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 amazing. Um, yeah, I love it. I think it's I think it's incredible. I feel like uh, Dominic was like he, he whoever his casting director was. He was just like, bring me the best character actors from everything, and <laughs> I'm just going to put them in my movie uh, because there is just the, the list is too long. To name and and obviously the 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 star of character actors in my opinion is is the all around fantastic Sam Rockwell who was just great when he would have these intense one on one scenes with Brad Pitt and their interactions specifically my my favorite one of the movie is when he wakes him up by by hitting the door and, and you've got that great shot of Jesse James like in the shadow. 
and he walks in and it's it's a fucking great scene the mm. the cinematography in this movie is off the chains like it it really made me think of like uh hateful eight there was a lot of like nice snowy landscape shots but it's just such a he takes his time he didn't like i feel like he didn't let anyone like dictate what he was going to do to tell this story and you get this this almost three hour epic of Jesse James and Brad Pitt is just unreal. It's one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances, hands down. And, um, and this is my first time rewatching it since, uh, we've did our Sam Fuller episode and watched, I shot Jesse James. So it was interesting to kind of see a new take from, from what Sam Fuller was able to do because you pick up on a lot more with Robert Ford and Jesse James and their interactions and, and kind of what he wanted to do with that relationship. And Casey Affleck's another one who was just phenomenal in this movie. He was just so creepy and weird. Yeah. And I, I think um, that's, that, that's a really important point. I think, because I think that Affleck actually gives an inflection to, to Brad Pitt in, in a way that w- just works that you can't, you know, it's intangible, I think, because Affleck is always kind of playing outsiders who want to be all American but don't quite fit into that mythological ideal. And then when you put him next to Brad Pitt, who just is that, it really, that, that brings out that sense of, you know, where the ideal is and, and the people who don't measure up to it and how the jealousy and that, that sense of stardom and, you know, wanting to sort of possess something that, that you can't. And yeah, it really, it, it, to me, it, it's still, it, as much as killing them softly, it feeds into that, a lot of the kind of anxieties about American masculinity that, you know, look from somebody who's looking at the, from the outside. Neil or Dario, have you guys ever seen that, that Sam Fuller movie that John referenced that I shot Jesse James? Not I've for seen a, it long, a long, long time. time. Ago, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think yeah, it's, it's, I think um, it's about Jesse James, isn't it? In a way that this film is not about Jesse James, you know, like it's, it, it, it is, but it's also about, yeah, I think what were you saying there, Dario, about the 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 Brad Pitt Sam Shepherdness of it? I'd never thought about, you know, like because yeah, he's Brad Pitt is kind of considered the heir to Robert Redford, but he's always wanted to be yeah. <laughs> Sam Shepherd. It's so true, you know, like he, and I think that's a really interesting thing, and you know that sort of hangs over this movie, you know, when 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 Shepherd as the brother kind of disappears, you know, there's there is the sense within Brad Pitt's performance that he's he's fulfilling a a role that he just he doesn't want to he doesn't want to play you know the, the the I love how long it is because you really get a sense that this is a film about time and how time wears everything down um you know t- time is what causes Bob Ford to to kill him because he spends so much time with him you know mm. and he knows this person in a way that and it, he's so disappointed because he wants him to be he wants him to be the character from the books and he could never be and you know uh, it's just there's there's so much hanging over the the myth of of America in this film that's just it's just it's just, it's astonishing um and when I watch it yeah I don't feel like I'm watching a film about Jesse James I feel like I'm watching a film about America um you know which made by an Amer- made by an Australian who'd only made one movie I think is is quite something no I I think that that's a that's a great point because I'm a huge Western fan and watching this it's literally like watching someone break down all the myths of of the john wayne aesthetic hero american west 
And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so special. And I think that's also another uh, reason, Jacob, when you say it's the best Western since Unforgiven, it it kind of continues this breakdown that Unforgiven was able to do uh, just in this really unique, special way. Yeah, you know, I um, I mean, I will just kind of echo what what you guys have said. I mean, astonishing is really not the word for the glow up between Chopper and this. Like, I mean, you know, like, I don't know how much, you know, because Roger Deakins is, you know, you know, probably the greatest cinematographer alive right now. And, um, you know, like, I don't want to like, you know, maybe give Andrew, I'm like watching it. I'm like, like after Chopper, I was like, maybe, maybe, maybe Deacons picked that shot out, you know, like, <laughs> like I felt myself like not wanting to give Dominic enough credit just because I was kind of like in shock. I was like, how does someone make this as their second movie? Like seven years later after making this kind of exploitation uh you know movie like i it, it's it's hard to even fathom how that happened but i mean he he fucking did it obviously i think it's a lot um, to do with brad pitt you know i mean brad pitt's a producer on this you know and it certainly feels like brad pitt knows what chopper's doing in terms of myth and thinks that he's the right person for the job and it feels like when 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 one of the great stars in the world gives you the confidence you just carry that through. That's what it's always felt like to me. Is like he's got the Brad Pitt seal, so he just kind of runs. But that's why the cast is so good. That's why they can get Deakins, and why Deakins is, you know, is is doing what he's doing because he, he just feels emboldened by by the fact that Brad Pitt obviously saw Chopper because Brad Pitt watches everything and know you know he's a he's a cinephile and you know is deeply interested in in who he wants to work with and who's doing what that's interesting and you know it it, it feels like there's a real connection. Because this film made no money and was kind of mildly, yeah. mildly well received. Like, there's no reason for Pitt to go back again and make another film with him unless he believes he's one of the one of the filmmakers that he should be working with. You know, and right. th- that's I think that's that's really telling that they went back and and worked together again. Um, and I think because a lot of what Brad Pitt's doing in the film is, is as Dario said, building, you know, built taking apart his own his own life and his own myth. You know, and where he'd sort of ended up in film and. That's that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a trust to have in your director that they're gonna that they're gonna be able to do that well. Um. Yeah, and and just sorry, just on top of that, I think that it's interesting that you guys are, are kind of you know that phrase of it, it's the best western since Unforgiven, and I think you have to, I think you have, I mean, to me, it's it's only it's this film is on a level with Unforgiven and The Revenant and No Country for Old Men in terms of kind of like the, the way that we see it in terms of size because of Brad Pitt. If you take Brad Pitt out and put somebody else in there, it's more along the lines of Slow West or even Meets Cut Off or First Cow, yeah. you know what I mean? The level, the, the sort of size of the movie in our perception is, as you know, is Brad Pitt really, I think. No, that, that's a great point because if you take, if you take him out, like it, it then becomes like more of a meditation, yeah. on on what's going on very similar to first cow and meeks cutoff um so no that's that's a that's a good point i mean brad pitt just brings this gravitas to it that obviously we'll never know what it's like to not have that but i mean yeah that's a that's a fair point i uh i i want to mention this one last thing you know we we talk about you know and this is something that i feel like i'm guilty of but it, it, it's become a little bit of a critical shorthand to to call something a revisionist Western, you know, and John, me and you have talked about this on our John Ford episode, but it's, 
you know, and I, I understand what people mean when they say revisionist Western, you know, puncturing the myth, right? But, and there, of course, are a lot of movies that that blow up this myth of, of uh, you know, the lone hero and, you know, High Noon, probably the most shining example of that. But, you know, John Ford made revisionist Westerns, you know what I mean? Like, not every one of his movies is a revisionist Western, but a lot of them are puncturing the myth of, of, you know, kind of the Western, uh, hero or, you know, I mean, if, if that's not, I mean, that's what the searchers is about. That's what the cavalry trilogy is about. I mean, once, once John Wayne like hit 1948, that's, that's all, or John Ford, I should, I'm sorry. Uh, that's, that's the only kind of movie he made was kind of, you know, puncturing this bubble of, of people's idea of what the old West is. And of course, you know, unforgiven, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I mean, the Wild Bunch, you know, we, we have this long tradition, but I'm interested to see what you guys think about this. My my kind of like operating thesis on this, on the assassination of Jesse James is, I think it revises this Western myth in a very specific way. And I think it's, it's, it's you know, because... Clint Eastwood, you know, in Unforgiven is saying, well, you know, this, this, this violent life is, is, is destructive ultimately, you know, and this way of life is, is not, you know, not the way to go. And of course, Deadwood may be even the most ultimate example of that. But I think what Jesse James is saying, what this movie is saying is that it's something really kind of delicate and interesting that I've never seen uh, in any Western before, which is the old West died not because it was overtly violent or not because it was just, you know, a dry run for the civilization that was to come or whatever, whatever, but that the old West died because it became self-aware, you know, because it started making myths about itself, you know, and because it started, you know, with these kind of inflated tales of, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, these, you know, outlaws and bandits and stuff. And it, once you start making those myths, well, that means the real thing is dead already. And that is kind of, I don't know, that that was kind of my reading on it. I'm interested to see, um, I don't know, wh- what do you guys think? How, do, how does this movie revise ideas that we previously have about the Western? Uh, do you want me to go, Neil? Or, uh... You can go first, mate, yeah. Oh, that, that was bad hosting. Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's just because there's four of us always on the line. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sorry, yeah. Um, well, I think re- revising the, the myth of the Western is, is kind of bandied about. And I think you have to be a little bit more precise about what you mean, I think. So and what I mean by that is, yeah, I think something like this film does puncture a hole in the, the construction of, you know, the, the lone hero you know, out out in the in 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 the country, kind of man against nature and the development of manifest destiny. But I think that true revisionism is very few and far between, and that has to engage with the fact that westerns are romanticizing a colonial expansion, right. and unless they're engaging with the the impacts of um, of, of of that colonial drive across America and and what impact it had on um, indigenous Americans and other you know other non-white identities that you know that, that were implicated within that expansion, then I think that is it isn't really revising or isn't really getting to grips with what actually the the essence of 
the Western as a genre is is underpinned by. So I think it's a it's a difficult term. I mean, even something you know like Dances with Wolves is you know problematic because it's still putting the the white male hero at the center. But at least there's a sort of acknowledgement of that person and and you know the the American characters problematic stake in what they're doing to in, in in even founding the very idea of america interesting okay so in your, so so your perspective on it would be uh almost that there is like no such thing as a revisionist western or or that there almost can't be uh because i mean at the end of the day we were making these big you know big hollywood movies about them about this 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 mythology well i think you'd have to you'd have to really acknowledge and even make a film that that was positioning you know this the the central characterization or the central concern would 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 be the effect of the colonial expansion on indigenous americans and i think there are westerns that have started to to do that and but often because of the because of the hollywood machine then you still have to have a white hero that facilitates that so you know, sure. revisionism is very difficult because of the you know, the nature of the Hollywood system. You know, as a as a kind of kind of commercial institution. But that's not to say that I don't think that the idea of the 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 construction of westerns as you know kind of romanticized gunslingers is not something that has been taken on. It's like it does it in Jesse James, particularly like, like in that scene, for example, in the bedroom where there's a shootout and it's the crappiest shootout you've ever seen. <laughs> you know, they're missing all over the place. And 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 when he kills him, Casey Affleck kind of goes up and says, oh, wow, he's, you know, he's still breathing when the blood's coming out of the back. And, they're, they're, you know, they're not used to killing each other in, in that way where you can see sort of Clint Eastwood as the, as the anti-hero gunsling, gunslinger is, is is the focal point of a lot of Westerns. Yeah. Neil, what about you? What's your what's your perspective on this? So, yeah, I, I largely agree with Dario, I think that it's it, I mean, it's a massively I, it's a problematic term. It feels like it's a shorthand for every every western since sort of the late 60s. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think but a lot of that is is there's a revisionism about the revisionism. You know, I think you look at something like The Wild Bunch, which I think does what Dario is suggesting, which is kind of it, it very much tries to engage with the economic and cultural realities of of what was the West, um, yeah, and uh, and is also a kind of at the time an ugly movie, you know, extremely violent, aesthetically very different to a classic Western, and it's only over time that it's become hugely influential and you know, and sort of seen as as as, as a beautiful movie, which is it's kind of not what it was. It certainly doesn't feel like it. Peckinpah's intention is to make a beautiful movie. Um, you know, and I, I do think things like Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man is 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 much closer to a, what might be a, a true revisionist film because it's it's there's a murk to it. You know, it's it's not a glamorous movie, but then there is this kind of strange strangeness to the relationship between William Blake and and nobody. Um, you know, which kind of does bring in a, a kind of Native American character to to something that feels very familiar in a really interesting way. Um, hmm. But uh, I think what I, the, the assassination of Jesse James doesn't doesn't really fit because I think it's simultaneously debunking so much stuff, but also, and this is I think this is the smart the smart reason for bringing someone like Deakins is that it's also kind of creating a romance and a myth as, and sort of saying this is why Jesse James was regarded. You know, I mean, look at that train heist and the way 
the way mm. that that is handled it feels yeah. epic it feels like he is this kind of you know black shadowy hero figure kind of taking on capitalism in the form of demon throne it's really you know it, it really it really lets you know how the myth of jesse james came to be you know it's it's not trying to it's not trying to to say that there was no you know that but that was something that shouldn't have you know that, that was just kind of an uh what's the word an accident you know that right there was there was there was something about him and the way he did things that that that, that led to the myth in the first place that then the and the film carries that as well as the deconstruction so it's doing both things at the same time which again suggests that it it, it you need something else but i think also the point you're sort of making about ford i think is it's a good one. You know, you think of a film like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is doing something very similar. You know, it's both a classic Western with, you know, two of the two of the biggest, you know, Western legends ever. Um, but it's also deconstructing the ideas of myth and, you know, heroism and these kind of Wild West outlaw figures, you know, at, at the same time. And, and I think over time, much more of much more of that work, like Fuller's work, particularly as well as has been come to, to be seen as doing more than just one thing. And it's another example of where we, you know, sort of there's a desire to put everything into an easy box of classic Western and then revisionist Western. But the truth is much murkier, and there's usually mm-hmm. a lot more going on in these films than than, than just one thing or one agenda. Yeah, I think that's my. I think that's my. <laughs> I balk at that term revisionist Western because I'm like, well, revising was <laughs> like the dime store version of like the dime store paperback version of the old West mythology, like Louis L'Amour books. Cause I mean, John Ford was doing that. Like, like what, what exactly do, are we talking about when we say revising, you know? Um, and I think as well, just to, to add in there, I think it, it, it fails to recognize what genres are doing that are contemporary, you know, that so right. many of the classic Westerns were not, Oh, look what life was like a hundred years ago. They were vehicles for, addressing things that were going on in America at that time, you know, they were, right. they were both hearkening back, but also commenting on, you know, the twenties, the thirties, the forties <laughs> in very, very direct ways. Um, in the way that, you know, I guess the film we're talking about next is doing as well. It's a very pulpy, dark genre movie, but it's very explicitly about the time that it's, that it's made in um, rather than being kind of nostalgic for a, a sort of a time in the past. Sure. Yeah, and and I think I think like Neil said, in terms of it, it kind of has become this catch-all term that it just for me it doesn't work specifically for this movie because it's not it's not like it's not revising anything like you're saying. It's just it's demystifying it if anything because it's breaking down a little more right. about like it starts like you guys said with the legend, the train robber. He's acting like the shadow like with with what he's doing with his gang and then like it just kind of it goes downhill from there so if anything it's demystifying and showing us probably closer to what reality was than than like like a like you said a Louis Lamore book or or a John Wayne movie or something like that because it mm-hmm. it just makes more sense um i personally hate that term too but there's quite a few terms that i feel get tossed around a lot that sometimes don't apply but that's just what people use because they have turned into like this catch-all i i would yeah, not just, consider this movie that though yeah just critical shorthand well let's move into uh unless anybody has anything else we can move into uh 
killing them softly. Um, John, why don't you lead the way on this? What about uh, what about killing them softly? Because I, I mean, I love Jesse James, but I mean, man, I, I will, I, I have to be convinced that this is not also a masterpiece. I love this movie so much. I mean, I, I think it's blunt edge is a feature and not a bug, but uh, we'll get to that. I don't know, John. What do you think about it? I think that it's it's probably my favorite movie by him. But I think I think Jesse James is, is 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 a better film in terms of how he made it in terms of the shots, obviously with Deacons. But I feel like this is like somehow a more interesting film, given the subject matter and the political backdrop that he was working with. Um, for any long term listeners, we've talked about this on our podcast months ago because uh, I had revisited it when it hit Netflix and I didn't like it the first time I saw it. Wow. But then I rewatched it on your recommend, you're like, Hey, you should give it another rewatch. So I, I ended up watching it twice. And then once again, last night, actually getting ready for this and it gets better every time I watch it. And I don't understand how. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that's kind of where I'm at with it now, but, uh, uh, Dario, Neil, what do you guys think? Uh, whoever wants to go first, you go first this time, Neil. I'll go first this time. Yeah. It's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Um, I knew I was going to love this movie from like the first opening, the opening sequence, you know, where he's walking down the tunnel and there's like the broadcast and the sound design. And I was just like, yeah, I'm in, this is, this is my bag completely. Um, I love pulp, you know, I love dirty, nasty pulp. Um, and yeah, this is a dirty, nasty pulp, but done to such a, such a strong degree with just a, an almost unbearable, kind of nihilism to it um shot through with just amazing humor um again what a cast like just you know i think re-watching it I, what i was struck by was you know it's got so many scenes that shouldn't work you know like ben ben mendelson nodding off whilst scoot mcnair is trying to find out information should not you know we've seen that movie 100 it shouldn't work but the two of them are just astounding and it's so frustrating and so funny and so sad that you just, I just you can't I just I, I don't think you can fault it I yeah I think the music choices are great I think it's brilliant and then as you know again as soon as Brad Pitt's you know Brad Pitt is, is welcomed into Johnny Cash's The Man Comes Around like it's just <laughs> everything about it is like is 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 my bag so yeah yeah I remember watching this actually at the cinema I think I was in in Falmouth at the time and and we'd went but down in Farmers is a very small town and you, you go to the cinema and um, there's usually people there that you know, you know, students and what, and what have you. And there's quite a few in at the time. I think I went to see it with Kingsley, who's a colleague of ours, Neil. And, um, and yeah, we, we came out and I just distinctly remembering everybody was kind of like, yeah, that wasn't bad. That was, that, that was all right. And I, again, not to be a sort of after time, I was like, I'm sure I've seen something. I've just seen something there that's better than that. You know, yeah. and it's. I'm, I'm yeah. always trying to understand why this was why this was a flop in the way you know that in a sort of a box office sense, and the only thing I can really put my finger on is that it's 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 crossing an American or it's giving an American audience something that's very hard to stomach, in the sense that it's so cynical and so undermining of Obama. And again, it's putting kind of Brad Pitt, even in the in Jesse James, like 
Brad Pitt is still idealized, but in this, yeah, he looks he looks cool, but he's really really evil. And and the sort of you know the denouement final line kind of sums up this real cynicism that's coming out of the sort of poster boy for Hollywood. And I, I think that maybe that's that's the reason that it that it's difficult to stomach just how cynical it 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 really sets up America to be. And you know, we were just sort of talking, weren't we, before we started recording about how this really is a a foreshadowing of of what would be to come post post Obama that we all that we all know about. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, Neil, like you said, man, this is, this is, this pulp, this is right up my alley. I mean, it could not, uh, the aesthetics and all that, like, it could not be more tailor made for me. The, uh, the music cuts and that opening with, like you said, the sound design. And I mean, you, you take an artfully done, you know, even if it's, even if it doesn't work, like really, like you take an artfully done pulp movie and I'm, I'm 90% of the way there. Like the, that's, I love that shit. And, but the thing that, <laughs> the thing that makes this movie hit home is, is exactly what you're talking about, Dario. Like the, uh, the political backdrop. I mean, this is, this, this movie came out in 2012. So, I mean, this is the year that, you know, the election, the, the year that Obama was reelected. Mm. And for the movie to be so anti-Obama, but not from a right-wing perspective, just from kind of a nihilistic uh, perspective, is really way ahead of its time. I mean, way ahead of its time, like eight years ahead of its time. Because I think it's finally, and I think there's, you know, there's a lot of American uh, center-left liberals who I think would... Uh, you know, still say like, you know, don't talk any, any, you know, don't say anything bad about Barack Obama. But, you know, I think uh, to any normal person, it's, you know, the, some of the, uh, the fecklessness of the Obama administration is in, in led us to right to the Trump era, you know, and to be able to, to be able to like articulate that through like such a, like you said, a cynical mouthpiece like Brad Pitt who, you know, at the time seemed nihilistic and cynical. And now he just seems like he's telling the truth. <laughs> like, it, do, it doesn't even read as cynicism anymore. This is just, you know, in, in 2021, this movie is hitting different, you know, uh, than it did when it originally released. Um, and I think that sledgehammer, it's its not uh, not subtle at all. And I think that sledgehammer is is... Uh, what is what is needed if you're going to make this kind of uh, political agitprop or like anti anti American, anti individualist, anti ultimately anti capitalist kind of agitprop? I think that's, um, I mean, shit. It's a way to make a movie, and it's a hell of a movie, you know. Um, I don't know, John. What did you think about the the kind of like political uh, commentary for just to just to use the most general word I can possibly say? <laughs> Well, you know, as I said, we talked about it on our podcast months ago. So I, I'll say that yeah, I I didn't like it the first time I saw it because I was like, man, this movie is not trying to be subtle. This movie is just saying what it wants to say. I don't dig it. It also kind of like broke down and not to overuse this word, but it, it kind of demystified the crime underworld, which I'm a big fan of. I don't want to think of B 
these crime organizations as as like just branches of government mm, where there's right. just bureaucracy and bullshit all the time. Like I don't like that's the whole reason you want to be a criminal is to not deal with that. But instead, Brad Pitt's having to like fill out fucking forms to kill people. Um, so, so you you've got that combined with the sledgehammer, and I'm like, dude, fuck this movie. So years went by. Like I said, you pointed out it's on Netflix. I revisited. I'm not sure what it says about me uh, at this point, but it's just like, man, I really like this nihilism and cynicism now. Um, <laughs> I didn't like it. I didn't like it when I first saw it, but now I'm on board. I'm like, you got, you get it. You get this man. Um, (laughs) So having seen it like five fucking times now, it literally is one of it's worked its way into my rotation to rewatch regularly. I think the cast is great. You know, Scooping Neri Mendelssohn, James Gandolfini brings something just, you know, I'm a huge Sopranos fan. He brings this level of patheticness that no one else could bring to that role. I mean, can and, we just talk? Can we just isolate on, on Gandolfini for a second? Because he is so fucking good in this tiny role. Like it is astonishing. Oh yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. What What do you guys think about Gandolfini? And like, you know, do you think he works in this movie? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Oh yeah. I mean, it's he. In many ways, he kind of steals it in a sense because he, yeah. he he comes in and he's he's hitting all the all of the. You know all of the echoes that we know where Gandolfini comes from, but again, he's 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 playing that that failed gangster, that the the washed up, um, absolutely right out on the edge of you know just giving everything up, but still, all he all he's got is that is that repartee, you know, that way of speaking, and you know maybe we'll t- we'll, we'll talk a little bit about sort of the, the the way his storytelling kind of sets up. How we might consider Dominic's movies in, t- in terms of in terms of the representation of women, but I think all of the cast are really brilliant, and because they've been given a, a brilliant script in terms of internal storytelling. So there's these little vignettes that you get that you know work within somehow, just work beautifully within what seems to be quite a a, a pared back narrative. But it's not mm. the storytelling is not you know overly smart ass like Tarantino is. I don't, you know, it's difficult to know how to explain it, but when he comes in and starts to tell these stories about his wife and just how broken down he is, and you know, he's knocking back the the alcohol like like nobody's business. And he's just a complete and utter fuck up. And Brad Pitt's got a kind of nurse made him and you can see him getting just more and more annoyed. It's just it's and I think everybody here kind of realized where they were. It seems to me, again, and maybe I'm projecting, but all of the actors are sort of like, yeah this is a game stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. I think he's, I mean, he's, he's astonishing. Um, I'm sadly missed. Um, the, you sort of mentioned there, the kind of the female characters. I think what I love about that scene is that the, the sex worker is the only, pretty much the only woman in the film, as far as I can remember. Um, but having her there, albeit in a kind of, um, you know, not, not much of a role. you, you really, it really captures the fact that he is a very pathetic man, but he's also incredibly dangerous, mm. you know, and that, he, that he's not just a kind of sad, lonely man who's got problems with his wife. You know, he, this man is is a brutal human being and mm. it, you wouldn't get that because Brad Pitt's not scared of him. And you see Brad Pitt's kind of complete disconnect from the world in that scene where this guy is clearly 
emotionally unstable and is going to kill the next sex worker he comes into contact with probably um and brad pitt is not scared of him one bit you know um and also has no regard for that woman's life you know it's very telling about these people and their their relationship to to women um and uh, and how they sort of view the two types of women i think it's really you know in sort of gandolfini's case just to get a little bit um sort of pretentious i, I read um recently um michael sandell's the tyranny of merit which was a book about how the kind of the cult of meritocracy has has led us to where we are now you know so this you know the the, the people who voted for trump were people who were told like you know to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and claim in america what is yours and claim you know work hard and and the rewards will be there and those people who mm. maybe tried or wanted to try but failed were realized that it's if you're if you're being told that there's something to achieve if you don't achieve it you're you feel like a failure and you feel left behind you know and that's certainly the case in in england as well as well as america this idea that you know it's that the most talented and you know will will rise to the top and but what if you're not the most talented and this rewatching this i was like yeah this is a film where these people all these characters are going to vote for trump because they don't buy into this idea of america um and this is the reality for them is they are literally scrambling around at the bottom and it's so telling that the the amount of money that the the dry cleaner and the two they're going to split 50 grand and that's it that's <laughs> right. their that's their big score is 50 grand and that's what that's what they all end up you know dead or in prison for is 50 grand and it's i just find it really telling that it's about these it's about yeah it's about a, the broken promise of america and what the reality is at the bottom for for so many people um you know and you can you can see that 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 kind of that disbelief in the system that Pitt, that Pitt has but he's 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 just a rung above the bottom you know like he, mm-hmm. and he knows it he's not he's under no illusions of where he is in the food chain he is a he is an animal surviving um which is why he puts up with Richard, Richard Jenkins bureaucracy because <laughs> what else is he going to do he's this is his life and he knows it and he's just got to He's just got to do it the best he can. It's, it's really scathing. Um, but yeah, I think at the time it probably felt too hopeless um, for a for a for a period of time where it was all about hope. Um, and now it's just it's too real because it's like yeah, this, we know this is the world we live in um, even more brutally than we did six seven years ago. Yeah, I I think that's what happened. Just real quick, I want to I want to add on to that point. I didn't. I don't think people realized that there was no reason to hope because there was none there. So it's like we watched this movie a few years later and you're like, okay, I get it now. There's no hope. So here we are. <laughs> Yesterday's uh, cynic is today's truth teller, I guess. Did you, um, did you guys notice the scene where, and this is, a, I'd actually just kind of twigged the first time when I watched it the other night where Brad Pitt walks into the bar to, to meet, uh, Frankie, basically, to put the frighteners on him. Yeah. And as he's walking in, somebody literally gets shot on the street. And Brad Pitt doesn't even turn around or look. He just walks (laughs) into the bar and you're just like, people are just dying on the streets and nobody gives a shit. It's just that, you know, it's it's absolutely perfectly done. You know, I, I think the key the key to kind of like uh, the bow that kind of ties all this together, like narratively, you know, these these desperate characters and like, you know, fighting over 50,000 and Brad Pitt's cynicism and even Brad Pitt's character's ability to deliver that speech at the end of the movie 
is based on this. It's based on the fact that all the characters are relating to each other uh, on a tra- only on a transactional basis. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like it's, you know, like I know you mentioned food chain, which like I know you literally didn't mean food chain, but it's but it's not even a food chain. It's a market. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a it literally is a market. Brad Pitt has a service that he is offering to Richard Jenkins and his bosses. And he has a leg up because he knows how to do he knows how to do the job and their other option is dead. So now it's only him. So he has a, you know, he has the confidence and the ability to say, fuck you, pay me at the end of the movie, you know, and the sex worker is the same way. You know, the only time these guys (laughs) interact with women in the, in the, in the movie is on a transactional basis, because that's, you know, it's a market, it's everybody. And, you know, Brad Pitt doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't, send Gandolfini packing because he cares about him or whatever, because he's going to fuck up his money. You know, this is, this is, you know, when you get right down to it, this is the, um, I I wouldn't even say this is like the Trump voter. This is the lumpen proletariat. This is the, the, the politically disengaged and uninterested, you know, the, no, I'm just scrambling around to do whatever the fuck that I possibly can do. And 50 grand to me might as well be a million. Mm. You know, yeah. like it, 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 it's going to, it's life changing money regardless. I can get a car. I can, you know, I can pay the deposit on rent on a decent apartment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that I think is what is so harrowing and why, why this movie earns its cynicism. Because at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't know what to tell you. Life is like that. Like they filmed that shit in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't do any set dressing. I, I live, you know, John, you live you know, two and a half hours away from New Orleans right now. That's what that shit looks like. Like, that's what New Orleans looked like, especially that's what it looked like in 2012. And like, yeah, it actually looks worse now. <laughs> so <laughs> well, there you go. Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's like it, it earns that cynicism, like because it is like, I don't know, like, I don't know what to tell you, man. This is this is the way life is here mm-hmm. in these United States of ours, you know? Yeah, that's like, yeah. That's the breaks, kiddo. I, I mean, what? What's interesting, if you think about the parallels to how Jesse James is set up in terms of here's this narrator who's setting up the mythology. So is he is he an unreliable narrator? Maybe not. He, But he's definitely creating a mythology or creating a romanticization around the character and around mm. how that character is representative of an American mythology, right? And it's almost as if the 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 constant television or radio playing in the background is doing the same job in terms of a voiceover narration and and Obama and George and George Bush they're the unreliable no, narrators because they're narrating America which is just bullshit for Brad yeah. Pitt you know what i mean and i think also there's a sort of there's an allegorical kind of element to the world of the gangsters and the world of wall street and and, and what's just gone on you know there's always yeah. that thing in the big short where you know the the wall street brokers knew they did these things because they knew they would get bailed out. You know what I mean? Right. So it was a scam. And 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 because of that, they're all in it for themselves. And it's the same here. Everybody is in it for them for themselves. And there is no emotion, you know, as Brad Pitt says. And then at the end, he delivers that, that punch. Look, fuck that shit, pay me. And that is exactly yeah. what Wall Street said to the American people. Right. And it no, that, that's Yeah, that's a great observation. That through line... Because obviously it's no accident that you have this, these backdrops of television sets with political leaders and things like that, mm. and, and 
and the noise in the back. Now that's a great observation that kind of acts as the narrator. Um, and yeah, the speech at the end, I mean, it, it, it really doesn't get in terms of how he delivered it and everything. I probably watched that scene uh, mm-hmm. 50 times. Like it's so fucking good. Um, so for all our young listeners out there, go watch this movie. <laughs> but I think you know, what's interesting. I, uh, oh no, sorry. Please go ahead, Neil. You know, I just think that 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 the moviness of it, I think, is really is really interesting, and 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 why it seems very similar to to Jesse James to me is that it's a it's a great movie. You know, it's really funny. It's Brad Pitt looks amazing. You know, uh, the the yeah. soundtrack is incredible. Um, it's got real pleasure in it, you know, and I think that watching them both back to back, I was struck by how how aware the the film is that that cinema has played a large role in in adding to and building up the myth of American individualism and, and the, the cult of the individual in the twentieth century. You know that 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 what is what is capable if you're just a certain way, and it it really is a a movie that is both at one point utterly nihilistic, but it's got a real, it's got a real, you know, pleasure to it, which I think is, is fascinating. It's a very enjoyable movie to watch because these actors are great and some of it's really funny. Um, and it's, it's almost acknowledging, yeah, that we, you know, movies have done this. Movies have told us that, you know, there's a, there's a glamorousness to, to certain aspects of the outlaw and, and also that, you know, the outlaw is part of American culture you know that we are we are we are looking at these people who kind of made something of themselves regardless of the circumstances which is both celebrated underplayed at the same time in a really smart way which Hmm. again is not it it either goes one or one or two ways i think in most in most cases Do, do you think do you guys think that that's where perhaps though the feminist critique comes in you know and and i've read pieces that talked about you know that it's not just about the visibility of women, but it's the way that they're talked about. And in both this and in Jesse James, there are extended scenes of men discussing having sex with women in a way that is at best vulgar and at worst outright misogynistic. I mean, and it's obvious these are male world worlds, and it's been it's been a deliberate choice to to do that. And I mean, I guess it cuts to that question of whether when you're depicting a misogynistic world um, and you're cutting to the reality of how violent masculinity thinks about women, or is there a kind of knowing glorification of this that we're all, if we're, if, if the implied viewer is male, then are we laughing along with that? And I can see where the critique comes of Dominic in, in that regard. No, I, th- I, I, I think I know what you mean. I think you know. I think killing them softly definitely feels much more of a statement about about misogyny um, and toxic masculinity than than the scene in Jesse James at the start, which I don't think you could. I don't think you could. You could. Um, you could argue that. But but you know, Dominic's new next film is is Blonde, the mm. jo- Joyce Carol Oates's Marilyn Monroe novel. Um, you know, and again. You know much of what you were saying earlier on, Jacob, about the kind of Tarantino-ness of Chopper. It feels like as he's as he's going as a filmmaker, he's almost responding to aspects of critique and you know things that you know Jesse James feels a world away from from the Tarantino-ness of Chopper. You know, and it certainly feels like to me there's a difference between the scene with Gandolfini and even Mendelssohn. You know, like um, early on in the film, 
which is again transactional. What's he going to do with his money, kind of thing? Um, to the to the scene at the at the start of of Jesse James, where they're kind of talking about um, sleeping with a, a naked Native American. So it feels like an evolution, but I think that if you were to come in cold, I think that you would you could definitely say that. But but whether yeah, kind of giving the benefit of the doubt to him because we like him. It's is it is it just a time when you you have to kind of take that on the chin. You have to acknowledge that if you're doing that, then you are open to criticism because there's there's it doesn't sit in a world where there's a variety of representations in that genre with which to say this is this is an example of this as opposed to these examples that they're doing something else because those those other examples don't really exist, you know. And particularly in pulp, there's very little you know, historically that, that, that treats women in any other way. Um, you know, and I think that it'll be interesting to see over the next few years, any films like this, that then maybe have to address, address that. I mean, I, I think the, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know, not to be, you know, not to be a chauvinist, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I generally don't have a lot of time for criticism like that, to be honest. I mean, you know, like I, I don't know. And we, we kind of tend to be hard on this stuff. I feel like sometimes on our podcast, but like if you're watching killing them softly and you're like, wow, the director thinks all of these characters are cool and has correct opinions. Like then I'm, I'm sorry, but like, you, you know, like you, you, you have the brain of a child. You know what I mean? If you're like, if, if you're hearing a Ben Mendelsohn, you know, say, well, she's not hot enough that I would rape her. Uh, but her parts work. So that's good. Like if you, if you think Andrew Dominic is watching that, those dailies, you know, and it's like, yes, that's right. I, I agree with that. Thank you for saying that Ben Mendelsohn. Like, I mean, come on, you know, like it, it's, I mean, clearly the, these, these men in this movie are dealing with women on a transactional basis. They're, they see them as objects because why wouldn't they, you know, they have been told, by society and encouraged by everybody and they see themselves as you know cogs in this capitalist machine uh so like why wouldn't they not see you know the prospect of sex as yet another um you know piece yet another uh uh vector on this transaction transactional market through which they live their lives like why would they not see women that way you know um yeah i think i think it would it would be weird in this movie if they had progressive opinions about women compared to the, their opinions about everything else you know which i think in the world in the world of this film it absolutely goes that that's exactly how they would think about about women um sure yeah, completely agree on that because like imagine how weird it would be if if you had if you didn't change anything but for some reason you give like gandolfini or brad pitt like a super progressive perspective on something. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, like uh, man, yeah. you're you're a real piece of shit, but that one thing, I really agree with you on. <laughs> you know, Finney's like, have you heard about this Bechdel test? Have you heard about this? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, I, I think we've, uh, I don't know, any, does anybody want to put a, a, a pin on, on Andrew Dominic and kind of his career? We've drawn on quite a few, I think, through lines, um, you know, kind of, Again, I truly think it's astonishing this man made Jesse James. And I certainly didn't see, you know, kind of this hard-boiled Pulp Fiction, uh, you know, political movie coming after, you know, essentially Days of Heaven, mm. uh, 
with Brad Pitt uh, in, in Jesse James. But I'm interested to see what you guys think about um, where he's headed to the future, too. Because, I mean, he has... Apparently, he worked a little bit with David Fincher on Mindhunter season two, and even directed a couple yeah. of episodes. Um, he made a doc, a music documentary about uh, Nick Cave, um, which I have not seen, and due to the subject matter, I probably am not going to see because um, it's, it's about Nick Cave and the death of his son. Yeah, it's a well, it's it's brilliant. It's one of the, I think it's one of the great music documentaries. But it is interestingly a film that. Is, is it tracks with his career so he's you know oh okay. yeah nick cave it is it is about the, the album that he made after the death of his son but it comes on the heels of Twenty Thousand days on earth which is the nick cave documentary where he sort of celebrates the the kind of the unknowingness of the artist and the fact that it is you know that an artist is a myth that you're never going to know kind of a very dylan-esque film in that sense and a really wonderful very playful sort of smokescreen that, that doesn't let you anywhere near nick cave um mm. i think is brilliant for that but then because of the circumstances everything about nick cave gets stripped down and deconstructed in this film because he is uh, he is physically unable to to put on a on an act you know he's literally in the middle of grief and recording an album to to try and process right. that grief and so when you when you consider it in dominic's career he's a, he's a great he's a very he's a very sensitive filmmaker to, to what is going on in terms of the moment that, 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 that Nick Cave is in. Obviously they're, they're long-term friends as well, which, which certainly helps, but yeah, it, it kind of fits in with, with, with a film that shows you a side of someone that is a kind of iconic mythical character um, in, in a way that is, is, is really unexpected and it's deeply moving as you can probably imagine. It's, it's a really, a really profound piece of work. Um, yeah. If you if you if you can, uh, at some point, it's worth it. Because but it, it's a hard watch. It's, it's certainly certainly not an easy watch. I could I could barely listen to that album yeah. when it came out. <laughs> uh, much less the uh, the doc- when I saw the that he directed the documentary. I was like, you know, I I think I'm just gonna pass on that for a while. Maybe I'll come back to it in a few years or something. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to 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 think what what Blonde might be like. I mean, from what I understand of the of the book it is a, a kind of fictionalization rather than a biography yeah so right. you know is there a i mean marilyn monroe must be up there with kind of mythological figures in american cinema and, and popular culture so it's going to be interesting to see what he he does with that and how it's received again you know this a film coming out like that that is going to kind of ostensibly put um, put ideas out in the world about Marilyn Monroe that won't be, you know, grounded in historical reality. You know, <laughs> where, where is that going to sit in this anxiety we have right now about where is where is truth and uh, all of the issues of of communication and the battle over over knowledge that we're that we're currently going through? So it'd be interesting to see the film and also the reaction, I think, to to what the film might be. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the, the biggest, you know, kind of myth puncturing thing of like Marilyn Monroe is like, which I think would be hack at this point. And I, I don't think this is the track he's going to go down, but it, you know, that the, 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 the kind of common trope is like, yeah, but did you know she was actually a very smart woman too, you know, <laughs> like, which is, 
it's like well okay you know like i don't i don't think that's like antithetical to you know her you know being beautiful or being a movie star or whatever but also another trope is like yeah but she was actually a tortured troubled soul you know she wasn't just all happy and these things to me seem like self-evident like it i don't Mm. You know, so I'm sure he's, you know, more discerning and not going to take that route. But what do you guys think about casting Anna de Armas? Because I I think it's interesting casting, you know, a non-white actress as Marilyn Monroe. But I mean, I I mean, just speaking honestly, I was like, how is she going to pull off her voice? I mean, I I mean, it's a unique uh, voice, to say the least, Marilyn Monroe's that that I don't know. That seems like a difficult proposition, but she's a great actress, you know. Yeah, and and look, you know, let's be honest, physical type as well. It's Mm -hmm. whenever casting, you know, whenever you speak to sort of casting people, there's always the admission, look, look, unless you're a huge star, we're after a physical type. And it's almost like taboo now to to sort of say that, but it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I'm assuming there's going to be quite an extensive transformation. And and again, like, like you say, I think the voice... Is going to be a, a, a. I mean, I don't. I just do not know what to what to expect with that. Um, in, if mm-hmm. you think of Same. the 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 accent and and you know what that will eventually kind of look like and sound like. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to say the least. I uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Did, did you guys ever see that Michelle Williams movie? Yeah, um, where she was Marilyn? Because I thought she was great yeah. in that. Yeah. No, I did, I did think that that was. That did work, actually. And again, you know, whenever it's very difficult, it doesn't matter who you pick to say who's going to be Marilyn Monroe because it is just such an iconic kind of aesthetic and also persona and voice and everything. So, but I mean, yeah, you can you can start off closer, I think, to to the type than Anna de Armas. So, yeah, I, I I don't know really. She looks good in the stills. So yeah. the stills look good. Yeah. So. And I trust Dominic, you know. Uh, I, I, right, right, you know. same. Yeah, like if it was just like a random project, I'd be like, well, that's going to be a weird one. But like since it's him, I'm like, well, this is, I mean, this is probably going to be great. So I'm wondering how he's going to pull it off. Um, and Jesse James yeah, is that's, only two anyway. So, you know, Brad Pitt was badly cast if that's the... Uh... <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, Very true. I don't know if he was that, That's really... That's really what it boils down to for me is having a director you trust. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, we can trust Dominic to, to get it right. I mean, you know, if this was, you know, uh, let me see a random name, Brett Ratner, I would have cause for concern. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Shots fired at Brett Ratner. Um, <laughs> Zack Snyder. There's the man you need. Well, hold on. We we have a Zack Snyder revisionism strain oh, do you? Uh, in, our, in our podcast, uh, which I, I sometimes agree with. I, uh, I would love to see Zack Snyder get a hold of of, of like an American icon like that and do it and do it three hundred style um, uh, for no reason. There's no battle scenes. I just want really intense, like you know, uh, paperwork filling out and really intense like walks or or whatever. do whatever you want to do. But sure, Wait, hold on, no, no, no. You you just I, I just you just hit on something that I think is great. Zack Snyder directs like Washington crossing the Delaware and it's called like 1776. Hey, he's already talked about he's Oh, hell yeah. I'd watch it, but he's already talked about, he's going to, he wants to make a Washington, a George Washington adventure movie. So, Oh my God. I would, I would be there on day one. I would go to infected theater just to see whatever that monstrosity would be. Um, 
All right, guys. Well, this is, uh, I don't know. Anybody got anything else? I think this has been a successful uh, crossover episode. What do you guys think? Yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, coming on, and uh, thank you for invite, inviting us onto, onto your show. It's uh, definitely something, I think, that is has been, been worthwhile. And I think that, you know, coming from the different places that we do, it's always interesting to kind of get into the weeds, I think, about how we... we um, how we understand films that, that that are American from an outsider perspective, but then you know, for you guys that are within that, to to, to get your takes on it is always really interesting. Within the belly of the beast. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, are things are things as hopeless in your country as they are over here? <laughs> yeah, that's, we, can't, we can't start that conversation now. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> that's podcast part two. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, guys, uh, thanks for having us on slash. Uh, we loved having you on. Exactly uh, the same. Yeah, this so... has been a lot of fun. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah guys, we, we appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, we're looking forward to getting this out. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers. See you later.